0: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast Asia centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Hey. Ahead of a nominally general election scheduled in Cambodia for the end of July 2018, our guest this month on new books in Southeast Asian Studies is Michael Sullivan, author of Cambodia Votes, Democracy, Authority and International Support for Elections 1993 to 2013, published in 2016 by Nias Press. Michael is an independent researcher and a former director of the Centre for Khmer Studies, and he's speaking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the College of Asia and the Pacific, National. National University and host of the channel. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Why did you write a book about elections in Cambodia?
1: I first visited Cambodia in
0: 1993,
1: just after the UNTAC polls. Politically, I was very unaware of what was happening in the country at the time. I, I knew there were elections, but I didn't know the extent of international involvement in the elections. So I was intrigued when I arrived to see so many foreign soldiers I've just left the British Armed Forces and had been working with Dutch Marines uh, in the Dutch Antilles in Dutch South Venezuela. So I was intrigued to see a battalion of Dutch Marines in Siem Reap. Why on earth were all these people here? What were they doing? What was their role? And that sort of spurred me on when it came to do my doctoral studies uh, at the School of Oriental African Studies, University of London in in 2000, which eventually led to uh, my doctoral thesis and, and eventually to the book.
0: And the book does begin with those United Nations managed elections of 1993. You describe them as unique. Why were they unique?
1: They were unique because never before had national elections in a sovereign state been conceived, planned, and organized by foreigners to the extent that they, they were in Cambodia. After all, they were the culmination of an unprecedented and, and extremely complex international operation known by the acronym UNTAC, the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia. Now, UNTAC has come in for for some criticism in terms of, was it a success or was it a failure? Regardless of that, UNTAC's impact on Cambodia's political and socio-economic developments has been undeniably profound. UNTAC did allow the democratic seed that is there in Cambodia and it created the fertile ground for democracy to flourish
0: there has been a lot written about that united nations intervention already so what contribution do you think that your book makes and what can a reader learn from your book that they couldn't get from some publication that's already out there from mm-hmm. earlier years
1: the literature on, on Cambodian electoral politics, in my view, tends to treat elections in an episodic fashion as one-off events. However, what I'd like to what I portray in the book is an evolutionary process. And this stems from the idea that Elections are a, a central site of struggle between the incumbent forces and opposition to those incumbent forces. So what we have is not just one single electoral event, but a progression and evolution of electoral politics, because after UNTAC, Cambodia, in order to hold future elections, had to seek more foreign technical and financial assistance. So in that sense, they uh, they were still learning as, as they go. And in between each elections, process they've been refining and, and retuning and the, the elections infrastructure and not just the infrastructure but other issues related to media access and, and voter education.
0: And the book, of course, tracks elections over the subsequent decades in 1998, 2002, 2003, a period of electoral development in the mid to late 2000s and the 2013 elections. Let's begin with the wash up from the UNTAC elections. Where did they leave the country politically in the mid 1990s? The first
1: thing to note in terms of the results of the UNTAC elections is that the electoral system was one of proportional representation. So even though Sen is often being portrayed and CPP often portrayed as having lost, they, it's just that their share of power was diminished, which in some respects was considered to be a loss. However, the outcome was this peculiar 50-50 power-sharing arrangement, essentially born out of Hun Sen's and the CPP's refusal to accept the results of the UNTAC election. So a compromise was reached that produced this very unstable coalition government between the leader of Hun St Prince Ranarid, who essentially was first prime minister in the new arrangement, and Hun Sen himself as the junior second prime minister. Now, this had profound implications for the subsequent development of electoral politics for many different reasons, but principally because Cambodia was unable, as I mentioned earlier, to organize elections without further extensive international technical and financial assistance. So any involvement with the elections by foreign actors was bound to be politically divisive and indeed contributed to the deterioration in relations between the two prime ministers, certainly from the Fun senator party conference in March 1996.
0: You've mentioned the two prime ministers. Who were some of the other leading Cambodian protagonists in your story?
1: Aside from Hun Sen and Rana Rid, we see in 1994 the emergence of what some Western Liberals regarded as the hope for electoral politics in Cambodia in the shape of the former Peck Finance Minister, Sam Rang si. Sam Rang si was highly critical of the developing corrupt nature of the new system post-Untac, and he was very vocal both in the uh, House of Parliament and elsewhere, in criticising both Hun Sen and Ranariddh, in fact, he once referred to the state as a mafia state, being led by the, these two individuals. He lost his seat in the parliament and was removed from Phunsenpeck, and he subsequently went on to form his own party, the Khmer Nation Party, and ultimately the Sam Rang Si Party. Now, he has been a key protagonist in the drama that unfolded post untac and up until very, very, very recently.
0: And are there other institutions that have played important parts domestically?
1: It becomes quite complicated insofar as if we if we think about the uh, the financial and technical assistance that I referred to, because formal request for electoral assistance was made by the co-ministers of the interior, both CPP and FUNCINPEC, which was granted sometime in uh, late 1996. I think it's important also to point out that after UNTAC, the United Nations set up the first ever human rights field office in Cambodia. So straight away, we have a UN agency with a particular mandate already in situ in the country. As the uh, preparations for the scheduled 1997 local elections and the 1998 national elections got underway, we see the emergence of other United Nations operations. Later we see European Union involvement and it's all of these competing interests of these various entities that's, uh, that's created the outcomes that we've seen.
0: In an article in the New Mandala website published in March 2018, you wrote that what we see in Cambodia today is a direct outcome of events in 1997. What happened then and why is that so? Well,
1: 1997 was a very important year insofar as we see the likes of Sam Rangsi and his Sam Rangsi party forming partnerships, loose coalitions with and other smaller opposition groups. And they mount a very credible challenge to the CPP and to Hun Sen. So much so that we witnessed this grenade attack on a KNP rally in March 1997, They're targeting Sam Rangsi, essentially. It was an attempt to assassinate Sam Rangsi. The attempt was unsuccessful. Many people were injured and killed. Now, that was followed in July by a preemptive strike by military forces loyal to Hun Sen, who removed. the coalition prime minister, Prince Ranarid, who fled the country and stayed in self-imposed exile until shortly before the 1998 elections. So 1997 was a key year. Now, what's important here is the international response. Some non-humanitarian aid was suspended, particularly by the United States and Germany. Cambodia's seat at the United Nations was left vacant. Cambodia's accession into the uh, ASEAN grouping was also postponed. Now, all of these could be resumed the way it was portrayed in the press at the time if Hun Sen agreed to hold elections in 1998. But of course, this is not the true picture, because Hun Sen was well aware that he had to to hold elections, constitutionally guaranteed elections. But the coup de force that he executed essentially gave him more control over the elections preparation process than he would have had if Ranarid and Sam Rangsi had remained in the country to participate in those preparations.
0: Nevertheless, he's come through to that point via an act of uh, spectacular violence, extrajudicial killings of large numbers of his electoral opponents, and yet international organizations that are bankrolling the electoral process continue to do so. Why?
1: Firstly, stability and development. Clearly, one needs a reasonably stable, politically stable government to get on with the job of delivering aid, reintegrating Cambodia into regional and international capitalist markets. And secondly, because... What alternatives did the international community have? Prince Ranarid has come in for lots of criticism. Gareth Evans, the the former foreign minister of Australia, described him as feckless. And I I think that characterisation is true to some extent. But there were other senior members of funsen Peck who were well aware of what the CPP was attempting to do in the mid-1990s in terms of securing and consolidating control in the rural areas where elections are, are, are won and lost in Cambodia.
0: What happened in 1998? Well, in
1: 1998, what we have is both Ranarid and Sam Rangsi, as I mentioned, in in self-imposed exile. And meanwhile, Hun Sen attempts to set up another coalition government with another Hun Sen member, a man called Ung Hood, who was clearly nothing more than, than a puppet of Hun Sen. And that particular version or iteration of the coalition government proceeded to prepare for the elections. And in some respects, particularly from the international perspective, the high-level diplomatic group, which is essentially comprised of the resident ambassadors in in Phnom Penh, this was an acceptable set of circumstances. At least behind the scenes, they saw it as an acceptable set of circumstances because it removed some of the obstacles that were in the way of creating the new electoral infrastructure, such as the political parties law, the election laws, etc., the commune elections law, and of course, the creation of the national election committee. But in the context of UNTAC, this was totally unacceptable because essentially an elected prime minister had been ousted through military force. So... As much as maybe the high-level diplomatic group and, and other, other international actors would have liked to have seen the new coalition government that Hun Sen had foolishly tried to set up continue in the context of UNTAC and what that meant for the that unprecedented United Nations operation, these circumstances were clearly unacceptable and Rana Ridd would have to return to compete in the elections, which he did in the weeks before. Also, Sam Rang returned to compete in those elections. Despite the fact that their party infrastructures have been more or less destroyed after the military action. Keep in mind that uh, more than 100 senior Hun senator leaders and officials had been extra judicially murdered after the coup. Despite all of this, the opposition parties, both Sam Wangsi and Hun senator actually recorded some impressive successes in the 1998 elections. However, nonetheless, because they still have a proportional representation system, we have a coalition government. A coalition government that Hun Sen, was artfully able to manipulate to his own ends.
0: So we have this extraordinary state of affairs and that consolidation of Hun Sen's power in the late 1990s. Three chapters of the book are devoted to the 2000s. In the interests of time, can you offer us a precy of the contents of those three chapters?
1: The postponed 1997 commune elections now takes place in 2002. Now these are important because. Hun Sen had essentially got what he wanted in 1998, despite the grenade attack in 1997, despite the coup de force executed by the military forces loyal to Hun Sen. He nonetheless emerged as the single prime minister in a new coalition government in 1998 with the tacit approval of the international community. So this is important for Hun Sen in 2002 to consolidate that power through local elections in 2002 and further national elections in 2003. And yet at the same time, given the nature of the Cambodian political system, given the nature of Cambodia's international relations with its donors and partners, was also still political space and opportunities for opposition parties to grow and consolidate gains that they had made in 1998 in the rural areas in particular, but also for civil society groups to embark upon programs and campaigns of education and advocacy in terms of electoral politics, educating voters about their rights and their responsibilities in the elections. So we see this struggle between the, these forces, the, the, the incumbent forces of Hun Sen and the CPP, and the opposition forces who nonetheless still have space given the international aspects of the Cambodian political system to grow and develop and evolve themselves.
0: And yet the outcome remains that CPP consolidates power. And looking at the cover of the book, you have the main title of the book, of course, Cambodia Votes, but underneath is a photograph of Hun Sen as prime minister casting his vote. So one wonders how much the book is really about Hun Sen's vote rather than the electorate's vote. Where is the electorate in these politics if ultimately CPP retains power What are we to make of the struggle that's associated with electoral outcomes that are, for the most part, known prior to the result of the election?
1: I think we see a good example of the power of elections, despite their competitive authoritarian nature. We see with the results in 2013 just how close the opposition came to a victory. Close enough to send shockwaves throughout the, the CPP. So when we take results, previous results at face value, they can be a bit deceptive. We need to dig a bit deeper and drill down to where the vote came from, the amount of votes that the, the opposition parties did garner, which is often greater than those of the CPP, but because of the political system at 51% or past the post, it doesn't really give a clear picture of what really has gone on in the villages and the districts. So it's always quite closely fought. And, and this brings back the notion of the evolution of this struggle for electoral politics that one day may result in a transfer of power from the CPP.
0: And that's something that uh, perhaps brings us into the discussion in the second half of the program. But before we go there, a couple of other points that you've raised, I think, do deserve attention. One is you've mentioned the National Election Committee already. Is that committee somehow ineffectual or unable to intervene in ways that will enable outcomes that are more representative, perhaps, of how the electorate would have it?
1: The NEC is a key institution in organising and executing elections. From the outset, it was always controversial. There was very little time to set up the committee before the 1998 elections. And I think it was deliberately underfunded and understaffed and didn't do a particularly good job, a good enough job, given the circumstances. But, of course, we have to remember that those circumstances came about because of the coup de force in July 1997. But right from the very beginning, it was an institution that didn't have the trust of the general population, it certainly didn't have the, the the trust of opposition politicians simply because it came under the influence of the CPP. Whomever controls the summit of the state can control the outcome of elections and the NEC was seen as, as a key institution to that end and the Hun Sen and the CPP have, have, have used the NEC to manipulate elections through maladministration, through malfeasance and, and, and other strategies.
0: The elections in 2013, with which the last substantive chapter of the book is concerned, are quite different than the preceding ones. How and why is that the case?
1: Much has been talked about the younger generations. The generations of Cambodians that have no personal memories of the Khmer Rouge may have no personal memories of even UNTAC, or some will have some vague memories of, uh, of the UNTAC operation. So we see A younger, more technically savvy, more globalized youth, I think, in Cambodia, who are very much aware of what happens outside of the country. They have access to social media, to technology such as mobile phones and data. So their worldview is is slightly different from perhaps what their parents' worldview was. And one interesting feature, I think, of the 2013 elections is the lack of fear amongst these groups. They're no longer prepared, I think, to tolerate the kinds of strategies of intimidation, coercion and violence that that the previous generations had tolerated up to a point. So we see a better informed youth, a better educated youth. And I think these are major factors in explaining the outcome in 2013
0: all right well let's think through the implications of that statement for what follows after a short sponsor's message and i'd like to shout a number of propositions on you michael if you don't mind propositions that follow from what we've discussed already and then we'll of course turn to the current situation in cambodia in 2018 ahead of the election planned for july sounds good thanks nick New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. au. That's seasiainstitute institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're discussing Michael Sullivan's Cambodia votes. Michael, I'd like to put a number of propositions to you and ask for you to respond to each by way of your observations of elections in Cambodia as spelled out in the book. And just to be clear for listeners, these propositions don't follow logically from one another, but rather they suggest alternative interpretations of events in Cambodia that came to me as I read your study. So the first proposition is international donor agencies seem to prefer stable electoral dictatorships to unstable but competitive democracies. In other words, given the choice between a messy democratic outcome and a constrained but reliable electoral dictatorship, they'll go with the latter. How would you respond?
1: I think that's a fair assessment. Certainly in the Cambodian case, We see democratic principles and ideals, and and even to some extent a democratization process, however one conceptualizes democratization as a process. We do see international involvement, or certainly some international actors, and here I'm referring to bilateral donors and some multilateral donors. We do see a reluctance to push Hun Sen on egregious human rights abuses. There is a tendency to tacitly support the notion of political stability, the notion of the reintegration of Cambodia into regional and international capitalist markets. So yes, I would agree that certainly some international actors, the ones I've referred to, are more interested in political stability, from which they can pursue their own interests, whatever those interests may be.
0: Would you like to take the opportunity to disaggregate that category of international agencies? Was there really a debate among agencies in the Cambodian case, especially post-1997, but also amid recurrent violence in the 2000s as to whether or not it may be better to withdraw support or to curtail it?
1: the notion of withdrawal of support I don't think was really ever on on, on the table the threat of, of withdrawal of, of aid and, and support was was certainly there in, in mainstream media but I think in reality because w- when we look at the outcomes that that was never really going to be the case Cambodia is very illustrative here of the the competing interests of the various international actors that have been involved and in fact indeed the United Nations really changed the way they did things because of the Cambodian experience particularly in in the run-up to the 1998 elections because we had for example, the United Nations Human Rights Office, we have the first ever field office that the United Nations had in place in country. And the likes of the United Nations Development Programme, both agencies have very different competing ideas of how to do what they did, of course, human rights reporters would produce reports and comment on on the human rights abuses, and the UNDP was more interested in development. So we see this clash of mandates, we see this clash of interests, and of course we extend that out to the capitals of Paris and and London and New York for the United Nations headquarters and and Tokyo and and other donors. We do see this clash of interests, this, this clash of ideas on what is the best way forward for Cambodia and Cambodia's political developments from their perspective. So it's the meanings that these different groups attach to elections and attach to the notion of Cambodian democracy that that's really important here to in producing the outcomes that we've seen.
0: So ultimately, questions of success or failure are not determined so much by the rubrics that ostensibly are cast over these elections in order to determine success or failure, but rather by the subjective meanings that different agencies assign them. Is that the point?
1: That's exactly right, Nick. Yes, I, I think you know, one, it really is about perception, how one perceives, how one characterizes the nature of the, the struggle. Clearly, for the opposition parties, they have a totally different interpretation of, of events by comparison to the UN and, and the CPP. But ultimately, yes, it is determined by the, uh, the specific interests, the subjective interests of the various international and domestic actors involved. And this what gives rise to this this notion of electoral authoritarianism or competitive authoritarianism.
0: Okay, my second proposition is democracy is not technology technical interventions into electoral politics don't produce democratic life. And on the contrary, under some circumstances, they can evacuate the political from politics. Your response again, with a view to the Cambodian experience?
1: I think we see this clearly, After the two thousand and three elections, and I think this is part of a more general trend globally, particularly after the terrorist attacks in in New York in two thousand and one and the subsequent war on terror and the foreign policy coup that took place in Washington. But I do think there was a a sense that, at least in international development circles, to deepen—I think I mentioned this in the book—to even depoliticize elections, particularly in Cambodia, we see elections being subsumed under more general development programs, as though somehow they are devoid of politics and they're favoring a more technical approach fine-tuning the, the, the laws and the legislation, ensuring that the NEC earns more trust and confidence uh, in, in, the, in the electorate. But, of course, the, the, the political, the messy political realities on the ground are far from that. So we tend to see a technocratic, almost Schumpeteran sort of limited notion of institutional democracy as opposed to the hard-fought and the struggles and, and violence and the coercion and, 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 and the education that goes on outside of those uh, those technical processes. So, yes, I think a technocratic approach fails in so far as it doesn't deal with the harsh political realities. So this attempt to depoliticize, again, results in what we have in terms of the post-election violence, for example, in, in both 1998 and, and 2003.
0: And yet you write in the book, and this brings me to the third and final proposition, which is your own, that, quote, The necessary survival of credible opposition political parties and civil groups struggling to reform the electoral system has kept open the lid on a democratic impulse in the Cambodian case. I wonder if you can reflect further on that remark about the democratic impulse from the Cambodian electorate in contradistinction to the remark you just made about the part that technicians play and then perhaps link it to events since 2013. And I think from this point onwards, we can talk more about what's going on in Cambodia presently.
1: Certainly, from my perspective, the the democratic impulse cannot be ignored, and uh, and it has not been ignored. In the general literature on Cambodian political development, we don't see much being written about the roles of the civil society groups. And here I'm referring to the likes of the Committee on Free and Fur Elections, the CADO, the Human Rights Organizations, and and Ad Hoc. Now, these civil groups have been there from the very beginning, and quietly, and I'm not so quietly at times, but behind the scenes, they have been doing an excellent job of getting the message out about elections through education programs, through media slots, through radio stations, informing particularly the younger generation of their rights and their responsibilities when it comes to voting and elections in general. So these groups are the unsung heroes in many ways in that process and they've made sure they've captured what space they they, they possibly can to educate and to advocate for elections and, and human rights and participation in politics more generally.
0: Well, there is that, but if the same party and the same personage come out on top, regardless of the popular sentiment, which is hard to discern under the circumstances, isn't there the possibility of demoralization or cynicism rather than persistent efforts to participate actively in these politics?
1: I see what you're alluding to here. And I, I agree to some extent, yes. I suppose you could argue, and I would argue, that these organizations that I've just mentioned are victims of their own success in many ways, insofar as that they have democratized the, the, the process to the extent where we see the results in 2013. But of course, we've yet to discuss perhaps the reasons why the CPP became complacent in the run-up to the 2013 elections. We saw the enthusiasm, and in fact, the rapture with which um, Sam Rangsi was greeted when he returned to compete in the 2013 elections. So, yes, apathy, maybe. Mm, I don't buy into that a great deal. I still think there's, um, there's still this groundswell of discontent and this sense that... Um, People do want to participate in politics. but We can discuss 2018 because it would be th- that will be very instructive uh, in, in that regard. What the turnout will be?
0: Well, let's do that. Clearly, you're still optimistic about the electoral process as a site of struggle, a site for struggle. You say there's less fear in Cambodia than there was in earlier decades. How optimistic are you about the possibilities for the democratic impulse to be realized in 2018, given that, and here I'd invite you to say much more, but briefly, we know that opponents to Hun Sen continue to be murdered and imprisoned. We have the shutdown of the only viable opposition party, the closing of news media outlets and massive censorship uh, attacks on anyone who seems to work against the party or Hun Sen or even their political or economic interests. Allies. To an observer, it looks fairly grim.
1: It seems to me that the, the CPP essentially and Hun Sen are, are really bereft of of ideas as as to how to deal with the uh, the opposition. They've tried every other tactic. Of course, the the the, the goal of Hun Sen. And the CPP, certainly from post UNTAC from 1994 onwards, has been to either marginalise or destroy the opposition. But of course, because of the nature of its international relations, and we can perhaps talk about China later, they have been unable to do that. So rather they have manipulated through violence and intimidation and coercion in the early years. And I'm talking here from post-1998 to 2003. And then after 2003, we see more administrative malfeasance and, and bureaucratic a manipulation of the elections themselves so it remains to be seen it's still not beyond the realms of possibility that Kem Sokhan may be released the CNRP reinstated but timing is really important here because Sen needs time it to the extent that the CNRP are not really able to participate in a meaningful way given the uh, the lead time that they would have if that was to happen and maybe at this stage that is a likely but it's still a possibility
0: you made a brief but suggestive reference to the part that china plays would you like to expand on that observation
1: people have argued that because of hun sen's relationship with china that it, it's it's less likely to respond to western demands for greater democratization or to address the human rights abuses it's that's a double edged sword for hun sen or for any uh, historically for any leader to throw all its eggs in one basket with the likes of, of a powerful neighbor uh, to the north So we'll see how that plays out. I personally think that there could be some backlash to the nature of Hun Sen's relationship with China amongst the electorate at some point, maybe not in these elections, but certainly in future elections.
0: Where do you think international backers for electoral reform and political change in Cambodia have to draw the line?
1: Well, the EU certainly distanced itself from elections in 2013. and There was not a great deal of of support from the international community, technical support. But I don't think the EU even reported on the 2013 election. They certainly didn't issue statements that, as they had in the past. I personally think that any elections without the CNRP will be completely illegitimate. However, much has been made in, in the mainstream media recently about the, the role of these smaller minority parties and the impact that they'll have on, on the vote. But if Huntsdown can pull this off without the CNRP, then I think that the election results, whatever they may be, will be endorsed by the main international donors and partners.
0: This brings me back to the second last sentence of your book, and not to push the point too much, but you state here uh, somewhat analogously to in the introduction that, quote, whatever happens, Cambodia's elections will continue to be key multi-dimensional sites of contestation between those forces maintaining power and control to preserve and perpetuate self-interested agendas and those striving to usurp them. Now, I suppose if you take that statement in the broadest possible sense, then it could apply to pretty much any election anywhere. But again, i like to ask you just to reinterpret your own remarks from back when the book was published in 2016, in 2018, in view of the specific contests and forces arrayed presently that we've just been talking about for an election that it would appear that only the CPP can win if we can use that term.
1: Before UNTAC, some scholars and commentators would argue that Cambodia was not ready for democracy, much in the same way that the Vietnamese and the Chinese didn't think that the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia was ready for a thoroughgoing sort of social utopian communist revolution. I disagree with the former statement about the democracy. I think democratic roots are always there. The democratic ideal has always been present in the Cambodian psyche. And that is not going to go away anytime soon. So as a consequence of that, I think the struggle... Between those who want to see more political equality, more political participation, and more control over decision making that affects their everyday lives then I see that struggle persisting no matter what the circumstances. And sooner or later, of course, the, the CPP will have to reorganise internally. And who knows what that may bring. I think the biggest problem that opposition forces certainly face, and, and maybe those in the electorate that want to see more positive social and political and economic change, is the entrenched nature of the elite. You know, Sen has been very successful in consolidating his own personal networks, his cl- the client and patron networks that he has, uh, backed by his own now sort of Paramilitary security forces. So, whilst they are deeply entrenched, I, I still think that democratic impulse that's present there in Cambodia will yield results in the future.
0: Let me end with two questions. One, perhaps scholarly in its orientation, and the other, policy oriented. Both of them fairly broad, but you can take them as you please. Apart from people like yourself, readers with a specific interest in Cambodia, why might scholars of other parts of Southeast Asia or of electoral cycles elsewhere take an interest in your book?
1: I still think Cambodia has many lessons to teach international interveners, people who are interested in formulating policies for political and democratic development in places like Cambodia. It's a great example of how we, I guess, as Western scholars or researchers, how we see ourselves and how we intervene. And we can see in through the Cambodian case just exactly what results that has borne out. So even in, in, the, in the so-called established liberal Western democracies, we can see divisions and contradictions and inconsistencies. And these, these are certainly highlighted in, in places like Cambodia. So it gives us an opportunity to take a look at ourselves in terms of what we do how we see democracy and and, and political developments um, in in our own countries as well as in in places like Cambodia.
0: And do you think there are any specific lessons that can be drawn?
1: Well, stand up to bullies is one lesson, but of course that's then determined by um, political economic elites in our uh, our own countries. But certainly do not give legitimacy to people like Hun Sen who routinely flout human rights conventions, engaging in practices that he has, including including murder.
0: With regards to the second and related question then, supposing you were giving the book to a policymaker in 2018 who is scratching their head a bit and wondering about where to go next in Cambodia. Aside from the rich empirical contents of the book, what else do you think it offers to that policymaker from abroad? Take
1: the book into the countryside with you. Spend more time listening to, to voters, spend more time listening to the, the civil society groups, the likes of Confrell and Ad hoc and Ricardo and, and others. So from that cultural, historical and political perspective, improve your understanding of the country, how the politics works and the and the power dynamics.
0: Right. Well, I hope that message will be taken on board, Michael Sullivan. And thank you again uh, very much for taking my questions on Cambodia votes. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much also to everyone for listening. And a reminder that aside from the Cambodian general election, another major event in of Southeast Asia this July 2018 is the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies panel at the Asian Studies Association of Australia Biennial Conference at the University of Sydney, where I'll be speaking with Holly High, Patrick Jory and Lee Morganbezer. Go to the website of our sponsor and host of the conference, the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, for more details.